There is a real popular Japanese restaurant in Tustin that many uh, members of Cornerstone like to go to. It's called Tommy's, a hole in the wall, but great sushi. Well, once a year, and I'm not going to tell you the date because you guys are going to come and, and make us wait in line longer, but once a year on a secret date, it's all-you-can-eat sushi for like 25 bucks. Is that right? 20 bucks, 25 bucks? And so you go there, and they lay it all out on the tables, and it's all you can eat. Now, no matter how much you starve yourself, you can only eat so much, right? So you have to kind of pick and choose your favorite sushi, your favorite hand rolls, your favorite crunchy rolls, all those rolls, because you can only eat so much. Well, that's the dilemma that we're stuck with in John chapter 6. A brother said to me before the service, you're preaching on 25 verses? Man, that's a lot of verses. Yeah, I know, brother. You know, there's a lot of good things here, a lot of truth. It's a wealth of spiritual truth here. But you and I, we can eat so much, right? We can stay, stay here for months, but, you know, we need to pick the best and come back later, maybe in months to come or years to come and, and continue to feed. Well, that's the challenge set before me. And so just understand that we're not going to cover every verse, cover every verb, every nuanced spiritual truth here. But hopefully we'll understand uh, our Lord's major message, his, his main theme as we close out John chapter 6. <clears throat> well, here's my introduction to the message. Uh, this past Wednesday, my wife and I, after we had put Elizabeth to sleep, we decided to have a late night snack, late night meal, or somewhat hungry. Um, for the past six months, I think, our favorite meal has been cereal. I don't know, we just can't get enough. We get that Quaker Oats brand, oats, raisin, and honey. We buy those two packs from Costco, and they don't last long in our household. I don't know why, we're on a cereal frenzy at this Shin household. Well. And uh, 11.30 at night, we got the cereal bowls out, we're about to eat, and I thought, you know, we're putting up a lot of pictures around the house. And so I got some old albums out to look through. The old albums consisted of pictures from our college years, our ministry on, on campuses, and also um, our ministry during the years at the church before Cornerstone, the other church. Now, looking through those pictures, it was beyond funny to see so many of you in those pictures. I mean, everyone has changed so much. Except for one guy, everybody's changed. <laughs> it's amazing. Many of us have gained a few pounds, right? Some of you gained a lot of pounds. <laughs> but many of us just gained a few. Um, we've seen how all of us have kind of grown older, grown wiser, we've all grown up. It's interesting to see that. And most importantly, I saw how many of us have matured in Christ. I mean, it was encouraging to see, just to remember how young people were and how they've come to the faith through the intervening years. But at the same time, there was a disturbing trend in many of the people in our pictures. In fact, after one particular album, we closed it up, and Surin's first words were, man, that was kind of discouraging. That's where, those were her words, exact words. That was, that was kind of discouraging. Now, why was it discouraging to see those pictures? Because there were so many people who were part of our campus ministry. I mean, there were so many people who were part of our church who we know are no longer walking with Christ. 
who are no longer following Christ. We are reminded of numerous individuals who we had ministered with, people who not only professed to be believers, but they were leaders in Christian ministry. And now they were no longer walking with the Lord. Now, it's not that they left the ministry, they left the church for another church. No, they left the universal church. They left, they rejected Christ himself. Now, some of them, I could have sworn, and I, I don't swear, but I could have sworn that they were Christians. I mean, these were good people. They were faithful, committed, very moral and diligent they had, they had seemingly great influence in people's lives for Christ. They had been very zealous for the things of God. And now, they live in the world. They have very little concern for spiritual things. They are consumed with making a good living, driving nice cars, living in nice homes, growing a good family, but they no longer follow Christ. Now, theologically, we know the answer to this, right? 1 John 2.19, the Bible tells us that such people were never true followers of Christ. That they went out from us because they were never of us from the start. If they were from Christ, if they were of Christ, they would have remained with us talking about the universal church. Right? They're going out revealed that their religion, that their faith, that their participation in the Lord's work was all, was all a sham. It was all an act. Whether they knowingly or unknowingly, they deceived themselves and deceived others. Now guys, and we have to wonder, if we were to take a group photo this afternoon and take a picture of everyone here today and, and revisit that picture five years from now, I mean, we have to, right? We need to, don't we? At least question whether how many of us will still be walking with the Lord in terms of following Christ, being a Christian. And how many of us will be proved to be false Christians? Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because that is the subject of our study this morning from John chapter 6. Right? I don't bring up disturbing truth because that's my, you know, that's my joy in life. No, it's a disturbing truth, but it is truth. This is one of the key reasons why studying expositionally through the Bible is so important. That we as a church, we've gone through Matthew, we've gone through 1 Timothy, and now we're going through the Gospel of John, and I am joyfully constrained to study the difficult texts of the Bible as well as the good text, quote-unquote, good text of the Bible. Now, if it were up to me, if I were preaching topically throughout the Bible, I would just preach on the love of God. I would preach on the joys of being a Christian, the blessings of following the Lord, koinonia, the fellowship of the saints. I mean, those would line all my sermons. But as we study through the Bible, one verse at a time, we are again joyfully constrained to study through the easy and the difficult truths of the Bible. Both the soul-warming and the soul-troubling passages of Scripture. And by far, i got to say, uh, no other passage has, has been more disturbing to me in the Gospel of John than this chapter right here, this passage right here. Um, particularly verse 
66, verse 66, chapter 6, verse 66. Mark of the beast. Easy for you to remember. John 6, 66 says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now note the word disciples there. These men and women who were turning back weren't just the fickle crowds who had gathered just for more food. No, these are disciples of Christ. Men and women who had been following the Lord for some time. Who had seen numerous miracles of Christ. Who had heard His teachings. Understood His authority. Made professions of following Him. And even they were even involved in ministry. In serving Christ. And yet, in verse 66, because of His teachings, they rejected Him and they no longer followed him. From this point on, it was over. No longer followed Christ. It is here that their true colors are shining through. And it is in this verse we find the turning point of the Gospel of John. This is the hinge. This is the watershed event where Christ is rejected not just by the leaders of Israel. He's not rejected not just by the fickle crowds. But from this point on, rejection has infiltrated to his own ranks, to his own disciples. They were now turning against him. Well, then the question is, what brought this about? What caused these men and women to turn so quickly from their loyalty to Christ and with such determined resolution? What happened? Why did this happen? Now go back to verse 29. Let's do a brief review of John chapter 6, starting with verse 29. And we find that their rejection of Christ stems from our Lord's call. Our Lord's call to them to believe in Him. Their rejection stemmed from our Lord's call to say, when He said, Believe in Me. This is the very first time in the Gospel of John where our Lord called them to believe in Him. Surprising. First time. Where our Lord explicitly declares them to place their trust, their loyalty, their commitment to Christ Himself. The work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. And then He goes on and He tells them that the manna which their ancestors ate in the wilderness was not the food of immortality. He says that those who ate it died, some sooner, some later, but albeit they died. Similarly, the crowds, the food that they had just eaten, though it was miraculously provided, they also will die. Our Lord says He has come to give them better bread than that. Just in the way that He offered the Samaritan woman at the well, you're drinking this water, but you're going to thirst again. I'll give you living water. And you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. It will spring up towards eternal life. In like manner again in John chapter 6, Christ offers them better bread. Not just bread from heaven like manna. Manna was from heaven. But this is the living bread. This is the bread of life. The true bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 33. Now, 
Here is this offer for living bread, this offer of eternal life. Here is Jesus, the man performing miracles, teaching with authority. But verse 36, they still do not believe. They just will not believe. It's not they cannot. They just will not believe in him. And, and this was the sermon two weeks ago. This, was, this is the reason for, um, this, this is the unexplainable uh, truth of the Gospels. How can Christ, the Messiah of God, come to his own people, and yet his own people reject him? How could this happen? How is this possible? All through Abraham, God made promises that God will redeem Israel. And here is the promised Messiah. He is the Lord. He comes to his own people. And the people will not receive him. Why is this happening? What's the reason? Well, verses 37 through 45 is our Lord's explanation. Why they did not believe. And that was the five points of Jesus Christ. Right? Remember that? They reject Christ because that's God's sovereign plan. God is in control. God is in charge. He has determined the elect. And the elect will come to Christ. And when they come to Christ, Christ will not cast them out. Christ will raise them on the last day. The whole process from sin, salvation, resurrection has been preordained by God who is sovereign. And this is the reason for the rejection of these people. Highlighting God's sovereignty, right? Well, all of that now sets the stage for this final lesson about faith. All of that sets the stage for the final lesson about faith. We see in verses 46 to 71, five truths about genuine saving faith. Five truths about genuine saving faith. The object of faith. The act of faith the source of faith, and then we see a visual picture. A visual picture of um, false faith and true faith. Well, let's go to the first one. Go to our text this morning. The object of faith. Who is worthy to be the object of man's faith? Again, verse 29, our Lord declared... That the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Go down to verse 35. Last part, he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Notice in, bo in both these verses, these two words, believe in. You guys see that? Believe in. Pistuin ace. Two Greek words. This is a favorite word construction of John. It originated in the New Testament. In Greek, outside of the New Testament, you won't find this construction of believing in. It is unique to the New Testament. It is found 45 times from Matthew all the way to Revelation. Of that 45 times, John, the Gospel writer, uses it 36 times. He almost monopolizes this term. This expression of believing in. C.H. Dodd adds that so far has, he has been able to discover there is no parallel to this idea in all of the Greek language. Right. 
It was originated by the gospel writers and of all the gospel, uh, New Testament writers. And John monopolizes this, this idea of believing in. And every time, except for once, John 14, 1, and we'll get there um, later on. Believing in is always of Christ. It's always of Christ, 36 times. In John 14, 1, he parallels believing in God and believing in Christ. It's the same thing. So but 35 out of 36 is believing in Christ. Now, what is our Lord, what is John attempting to convey by means of this unknown idiom? What is the significance, what is packed in this idea of believing in? You know, for us, it's hard for us to understand the radicalness of our Lord's words. For the New Testament uh, um, listeners, for the hearers who heard this for the first time, even the New Testament readers who read decades later this account, for them to believe in a person, to put your loyalty, commitment, trust, and faith in a person was a revolutionary idea. It was unheard of. It was a completely a new concept for Jewish believers. Even today, in all the world religions, it is unique to Christianity. I mean, look at the world, world religions today. You want to become a Muslim? All you need to recite is the creed. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is the prophet of God. You just say that statement with faith in, that, in those words, and you're a Muslim. You want to, be, you want to participate in Hinduism? They believe that salvation comes from self-purification and self-realization. You separate yourself from the world. You become one with the uh, divine mind. And through maybe, it took Buddha 55 reincarnations. Right? That's a long time. Then perhaps you'll reach nirvana. What about New Testament Judaism? They were fixed on obeying the law, the Pharisees. For them, it was not about faith. It's not about trust. It was about obeying the law, external righteousness. They had a low view of God's law and a high view of man. And they thought they were able to please God who was holy and perfect by perfectly obeying God's holy laws. For them, it was all about creeds. It was all about rituals. It's all about performances. And here comes Christ into this synthetic system of world religions. And he declares to them, believe in me. Trust in me. This was radical. This was incredible. The Lord's declaration that He is the focus of man's salvation. This is not just found in John chapter 6. I mean, I have like 17 verses from the Gospel of John that, that declare that Christ is to be, our Lord is to be the object of faith. John 3.15, whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. 4.14, whoever drinks the water I shall give him will never thirst. John 5.40, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. John 6.35, he who believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.40, whoever sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. Two more verses, 647, He who believes in me has eternal life, 
and 653, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. For the Jewish listeners, this was a revolutionary concept to believe in a person. And like I told you guys, let's turn to John 14.1 and see the one time where believing in is used where the object is God and not Christ. A key verse in understanding the object of our faith. Our Lord, this is the upper room discourse. Uh, the Calvary is within sight. He comforts His disciples and He tells them, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Now, it is clear that God is considered a worthy object of faith. This is expected. The Jews love the Old Testament, ascribe to the Torah, the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God. For them to believe in God was an expected thing. But our Lord was saying on par with God, an equal worthy object of faith is Jesus. Believe in God, but believe also in me. Christ was calling them to trust in Him in equal terms with Yahweh. Their faith relationship with Jehovah, with Yahweh, must now be transferred, also be transferred to their relationship with Jesus. Trust and believe in Jesus. That is, back to John chapter 6, that is the central theme of verses 29 through 50, that the object of faith, the focus of our faith, of man's faith, must be in Jesus Christ. Verse 29, believe in the one God has sent. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never again hunger. Verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 40, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. I tell you the truth, he who believes has eternal life. This truth is declared boldly and candidly that He is the object of faith. And then in verses 51 through 58, our Lord extends that metaphor of bread and eternal life. And He uses that to describe the act of faith. To describe the act of faith. Now, with every word our Lord utters, the heat, the heat of controversy rises. Greater controversy ensues with every word of Christ. He has stated before in verses 35 that He is the bread of life. Verse 48 again, that He is the bread of life. He does so for the third time in verse 51. He says, I am the living bread. He carries this metaphor of, of bread and salvation by saying in verse 51, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, some of you might be confused. No doubt, the Jews who were listening were very confused. They, they even got very angry. It says, verse 52, they began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Uh, Christ is unhindered by this debate. Verse 53, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Now these words were controversial then, and they've been controversial throughout church history. And what does this mean? Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Now let me tell you, uh, first of all, that he is not talking about cannibalism as levied by the enemies of Christ. Obviously, he's talking about truth in the spiritual realm, not in the physical realm. He is not talking about communion, not talking about the Lord's Supper. The supper. There's no reference to that whatsoever in these verses. What is Christ talking about? What is he referencing? He's talking about faith. He's talking about, he's describing the act of believing. In human terms. Right? I mean, this was a radical concept. To believe, in a, to believe in a person. I mean, they must have wondered, as men do now, what does it mean to believe in Christ? What does it encompass? What does it involve? What is trusting in Christ? Right? To answer that question, let's step back for a moment. You know, we're looking at the leaves here. Looking at the tree, let's look at the forest. The Gospel of John is rightly called the Gospel of Belief. That word, or a derivative of that word, pisteo, faith, is used 98 times in the Gospel of John alone. The idea of faith predominates the Gospel writer's thoughts. Oh. Never once does he use the, ver the word faith as a noun. 98 times it is always a verb. So in John's mind, faith was an activity. It was not a thing. Faith is alive. It is vibrant. It is powerful. It is dynamic. It is productive. Faith to John and faith according to the Bible is never passive. It is never motionless. And it's never without external fruit. In addition, 54 out of the 98 verbs is in the present tense, a majority. So to John, faith was not thought of as a past event. You know, I had faith. Something that you practiced years ago. You, he never saw it as something in the past. To John, it was always, it was in the, the mindset was present tense. It was a continuing attitude throughout one's life, seen as a present activity. That's the big picture. As we come to the tree here of eating the flesh, drinking the blood, our Lord and John, to describe this dynamic, vibrant, powerful force of faith, they, they employed numerous word pictures, numerous expressions to describe faith. Because it is such a foreign concept. It is easy to recite a verse. It is easy to 
repeat our ritual. It's easy to go to church and do external things. But faith, it is a radical concept. They used numerous words to describe it. One word was receive, John 1.12, right? But to, all, but to all who received and who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. They considered faith as receiving Christ. They, Jesus likened faith to coming to him. John 5.39-40. through 40. John 6.37. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. They said faith is like coming to Christ. In John 15, the Lord looked at branches that were abiding in a vine. And they were feeding off of that vine to produce fruit. And they, in Christ, said, That is faith. If you abide in me, and I will abide in you. If you remain in me, I will remain in you, and you will bear much fruit. He likened faith to a branch abiding to a vine. In John 6.40, our Lord likened faith to looking to Christ. Beholding Christ. John 6.40, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, meaning everyone who beholds Christ, believes in Him, believes in, Christ, believes in God, and shall have eternal life. All these word pictures were used to describe the dynamic character of true faith. And that is exactly what our Lord is doing in, in chapter 6. Look at verse 47. The one who believes has eternal life. And then look at verse 54. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Here are two things with identical results. Thus, there are two ways of saying the same thing. As one takes and eats bread and drinks water, that is likened to faith. Right? As we eat, we take a foreign object, bread, and we take it and eat, and it becomes absorbed and assimilated into our body. Likewise, that's what faith is. Faith is taking Christ, reaching out to Christ, taking Him, receiving Him into ourselves, and absorbing Him, whereupon we are united with Him. We become one with Christ. It is in this way. He extends that metaphor of bread. Our Lord describes the act of faith. It is likened to the act of eating. So the idea again simply is, as one eats bread to live physically, one must eat or believe in Christ, the bread of life, to live eternally. Right. Now, with that expression, I mean, it is so loaded. And they're just, faith is so dynamic. You can see so many aspects or so many truths within these words. There's a sense where faith is individual. Right? I mean, after church, we're all going to go eat. Everybody. But I can't eat for you. And you can't eat for me. You can't watch me eat and be nourished. But likewise with Christ. It is individual. You must eat for yourself. Active eating signifies dependence. We eat because we are dependent upon it. If we don't eat, then we will die. Likewise, eating Christ acknowledges our dependence upon Christ for eternal life. That eternal life resides with Christ. 
that we cannot be saved by any other means, by any other way. We are dependent solely upon Christ. And also highlights the active, the dynamic aspect of faith, that it is not passive. It is not passive. You know the greatest motivation in the world is hunger, right? I mean, you guys ever get hungry and you just make a big feast when you're tired because you're hungry? You ever get hungry and you drive miles? You get dressed and you do all sorts of things because you're hungry? It's never passive. Likewise with faith. Faith is dynamic. It is vibrant. It is alive. It is powerful. Well, the audience, even his own disciples, did not like what they heard. Look, look at their response, verse, verse 59. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Our Lord says, does this offend you? Lord, if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before, if you see Christ in all his glory, will you believe me then? The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and would betray him. He went on to say, verse 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. I want to stop right there. Now there's, again, so much here. Guys, you know, I just can't cover it all. I, I can just focus on verse 65, on the source of faith. Christ says, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him, NIV. That's a questionable translation. I'd be as bold to say that's a wrong translation. If you have the New American Standard, a New King James, that is the correct translation where it says, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Not the idea of enablement, like prevenient grace, where God enables all men to come to him and those who are, has vestiges of righteousness can respond and trust in him. No, that's not the idea. The Greek word is didomai. It means given. Christ says, no man can come to me unless God gives him faith. God grants him faith to believe in me. He is saying, guys, you guys are close, but you guys are wrong. This is not a hard teaching. Not hard as in hard, but hard as in difficult. This is a difficult, this is not a difficult teaching. This is an impossible teaching. What I'm saying to you is, it is impossible for you to believe that for you to believe the only possible way is for that faith to be given to you by God. It cannot be produced by man alone. It has to be granted by God the Father. Ephesians 2.8.9 A verse familiar to all of us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Not by works that no man can boast. That word in verse 8. This in verse 8 refers the entire previous statement of salvation. Grace was given to us by God, but not only grace, even faith itself. The faith that we use to trust in Christ, that faith was given to us by grace, by God. That faith is a gift of God and cannot be exercised by man's own power. 
our Lord says, the source of man's faith is God the Father. Well, let's move on to perhaps, the, as I said, the saddest verse thus far in the Gospel of John. Verse 66, after this statement from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Um, that negative in the Greek emphasizes the once for all aspect. It wasn't a temporary backsliding, I'll be back tomorrow, I'll be back next month. No, it was once for all turning away from Christ. From this verse, we see three characteristics of false faith. Three characteristics of false faith. Number one, they were offended at the words of Christ. They were offended at the words of Christ. They stumbled because of Christ's words. Brothers and sisters, with all the love I can muster up, as a fellow sinner saved by grace, unworthy of God's grace, if the word of God stumbles you, if you read the Bible, you study the Bible. You hear the Word of God preached and it stumbles you. It hinders you. It offends you. It disturbs you. You disagree with it. It clear as can be. You're not a Christian. You're not saved. You just aren't. This is the words of eternal life. Contrast the response of these disciples to Peter. What does Peter say? You have the words of eternal life. Your words are my bread. It's water to a thirsty man. It's bread to a man who is dying of hunger. Your words are life to me. Jeremiah 15, 16, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For a Christian, the words of Christ is the greatest thing. Source of their joy. Reason for their lives. But a false Christian, hears the words of Christ. Hears it preached studies it, understands it, and they disagree. It disturbs and offends them. Clears can be a mark of false, that their, their profession of faith is false. Second characteristic of false faith is that they presently, he or she presently, do not follow Christ. Right, present tense. Right now, this moment, they are not following Christ. I was talking to a person a few months ago and the person was saying the last time he was walking with Christ last time he was living in obedience to his word was junior high school. I was like, what? If you have to go all the way to junior high school to think of the last time you were living in obedience to Christ uh, something is seriously wrong. Right? But the person was still holding on to that. I'm still a Christian because when I was in 8th grade, I was walking with the Lord. Faith is present. It's never in the past. It's present. If you are presently not walking with Christ, if you're not following Christ today, this second, doesn't matter who you were yesterday. Doesn't matter what you accomplished, what you believed, what you experienced days ago. Faith is in the present Never an event in the past. Thirdly, third mark of false faith is the direction of one's life is going away from Christ. The direction of one's life is going away from Christ. There's only two directions in life. One going toward Christ and away from Christ. 
That is it. Beloved, trust me when I say this. That this is biblical. This is from the Bible. This is what God says. There are only two roads in life. One road leading towards Christ and one road leading away from Christ. You're either you're on one or the other. And if you're presently walking, your direction is away from Christ. That's a mark. And your faith is disingenuous. That you are a false disciple. Look, faith, salvation is not about perfection. But it is about direction. I see so many. Where they're in the church. They're in ministry. They're in activities. But I have to wonder, where is the direction of their hearts? Are they pursuing Christ? Or are they pursuing something else? Look, all these men and women depict the marks of false faith. Let's look at the mark of true faith. Our Lord turns to His disciples, the twelve, and He says, You do not want to leave too, do you? Now, it's not a question of desperation. It's a question affirming what He knows to be true. Simon Peter, as he is so prone to do, he speaks for the group and he answers. And here is a declaration of, of true faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. When you tell me God is sovereign, when you tell me God is the elect, when you tell me that I am depraved, that faith is not of myself, it is completely a gift of God, that I am helpless to save myself, when you say these things, to me they are words of eternal life. They convey to me, they grant to me truth and salvation. To whom shall we go? You alone is the source of true salvation. Verse 69, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Those verbs are in the present tense. At this moment, this second, right now, we believe in you. We know you, we trust you, we are following you Mark of true faith is simple. It's faith. It is not an experience. It is not emotion. It is not baptism. It is not ministry. It's not tithing. It's not church attendance. It's none of these things. A mark of true faith is faith. Believing in Christ. And here is Peter declaring his faith in Christ. But... Peter made one error. Right? Peter, you know, he always, he's got to do something wrong. And he just spoke for himself. What's he doing? Remember, faith is individual. He should have said, I believe and I know you're the Holy One of God. Instead, he said, we. And Christ said, well, that's really not true, Peter. Because there is one among you uh, who is a devil. Christ knew Judas, Judas' heart. He was a coward. That in his heart, he was like the disciples who had deserted him. But because he was a coward, because he loved money, the gospel writer tells us, physically he remained with them. So Christ said, Peter, you're wrong. You know, you're right in that, but we is wrong. Speak only of yourself. Application, just one application, guys. Are you a Christian? Do you trust in Christ? Is it individual? I mean, when you are by yourself, when you are apart from the church, when you're in the world, when you're alone, do you believe in Christ? Secondly, is it a personal faith? 
Is it a personal conviction, trusting in Christ? Or are you conforming to the church at Cornerstone? Are you conforming to your family? Are you conforming externally to the surroundings, to your surroundings? Or is it a personal conviction? This is what you believe, this is what you stand on, this is what you'll live for and die for. Thirdly, is your faith a demonic faith? Right? James 2.19 Or is it faith that's given to you by God? If it's faith given to you by God, God's given faith is dynamic. It is vibrant. It is active. It is alive. It is the most powerful thing in the world. It will transform. It transforms people. They are changed men and women. The direction of their lives is completely, radically transformed. Where they no longer live for this world, they live for Christ. It is clearly discerned when God-given faith is active in a person's life. Are you presently trusting in Christ? Not about yesterday, not about your college years, but right now, today, this morning, are you trusting, believing in Christ? Examine yourselves, Apostle Paul says in Corinthians 13.5, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? I have for you the character of genuine saving faith in the outlines. Evidences that neither prove nor disprove one's faith. Morality does not. Non-Christians can be and are very moral. Intellectual knowledge does not prove anything because Pharisees had intellectual knowledge. Religious involvement does not. Active in ministry does not. The Pharisees are clear indicators. Conviction of sin is not. Non-believers have sorrow for sin, but no repentance. Having assurance is not. When those terrorists were assured they were going to heaven, it means nothing. Time of decision means nothing. The characteristics of genuine faith, genuine saving faith, are listed as follows. Love for God, repentance from sin, genuine humility, devotion to God's glory where you delight to obey God's word, continual prayer, selfless love, separation from the world, spiritual growth, and obedient living. Brother, it takes courage. To confront the truth. It takes courage and a sincere heart to confront the truth, whether you're a Christian or not. Do not be like Judas, a secret coward, physically following Christ, but his heart is far away. In a sense, I respect the men and women who left Christ in verse 66 a lot more than Judas, because at least they were doing what they believed, right? Here's Judas, acting out his hypocrisy, but fooling no one, not fooling God. Can you confront the truth today? Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith or not. If you are, praise God. If you're not, trust in Christ today. Repent that you might have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, you have prophesied that one day many will come to you saying, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name the works of miracles and cast out demons? 
and you will say to them, Never have I known you. Away from me, you workers of iniquity. That prophecy will come true. That there will be men and women who, who thought that they were Christians. And they will come to you thinking that they will be received into heaven. But to their horror, they were never saved. Their religion was before man and not before God. Lord, how tragic it would be um, for that to happen to any, any of us here in this room. Lord, if you were to take a picture of everyone here, you know who are the true Christians and who are not. It is not for us to ju judge, and we know that the Holy Spirit is convicting sin in the hearts of all of us. We pray you will grant us, all of, the, all of us, the grace to test ourselves, to see if we're in the faith, taking spiritual inventory of our lives so that we would honor you, God. We would glorify you by trusting in your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.